Well, good morning, Cornerstone family. It's always a delight to be here. Thank you again for allowing me to worship with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 5. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 17. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 17. If I could ask you to stand as we honor God in the reading of his word. This is God's holy and inerrant word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the invitation to come to your house, into your presence this morning. Lord, thank you that we get to be in your presence. Thank you that we get to sing these songs, that we have a song to sing, that we get to sing and celebrate Jesus Christ. Lord, we've come to the portion of this worship where we are now seated and quieted. We ask that you would feed us nourish us through the preaching and hearing of your word. And so, Father, speak, for your children are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A woman took her husband to the doctor's office. After his checkup, the doctor said, your husband is suffering from a very serious illness. The husband, who had a heart of hearing, said, what did he say? His wife said, the doctor said, you're very, very sick, dear. The doctor went on, but there is hope. You just need to reduce his stress. Each morning, give him a healthy, hearty breakfast. Be pleasant, nice, and kind. For lunch and dinner, make him his favorite meals. Don't discuss your problems with him because it would only make his stress worse. Don't yell at him or argue with him. And most importantly, just cater to your husband's every need. If you do this for your husband, 
for the next six months to a year, I think your husband will have a complete recovery. The husband said, honey, what did he say? To which the wife replied, honey, you're going to die. <laughs> We're introduced to a man in today's text who indeed is very, very sick. A man who had been suffering for 38 years. And unlike the husband with a pretty good prognosis, we are introduced to a man who is in desperate need of healing, a man who is defeated without hope, a man who has tried everything to be healed, a man who left on his own would remain powerless, would remain sick, would remain an invalid. Well, what we're going to see is that he's not left alone to wither and die. No, he witnesses firsthand the power of Jesus to heal, to restore. But what we have this morning is not a mere invitation to see the power of Jesus, but we're going to see the person of Jesus. And so here's the gospel truth for us today. God extends a personal invitation to witness the power of Jesus that compels us to worship the person of Jesus. God extends a personal invitation to witness the power of Jesus that compels us to worship the person of Jesus. And I have three sections, three headings for us today. The crowd, the compassion, the controversy. Let's look at the crowd. In order for us to fully appreciate what's going on in today's text, I think it's necessary for, under, for us to understand the context. What we read here in the beginning of our passage is that there is a gate called the sheep gate. Well, what is this gate? What is the sheep gate? It's exactly what it sounds like. It's the gate through, gate through which the sheep enter before it's sacrificed at the temple. And at the sheep gate, we learn that there is a pool, which is called Bethesda. Now, just as a side, whenever you come across a word in the Bible with the word Beth in it, it means house of. For example, Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethany, house of figs. Or in today's case, Bethesda, it's a combination of Beth and Hesed. Maybe some of you are familiar with that word, hesed. Hesed meaning loving kindness or mercy. And so this pool is named House of Mercy. But what's ironic about this name, Bethesda, or House of Mercy, is that this place was anything but a place of mercy. You see, this pool was surrounded by five roofed porches that was upheld by pillars. And so I want you to imagine a pool surrounded by porches in the shape of a pentagon. And then I want you to imagine a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, gathered together under these roofs for shelter. There may have been dozens, hundreds, or few hundreds, all sitting or laying in these roof porches that provided shelter from the sun. And from our story, we can assume that there were those who were there who possibly came every day. Now, the question is, why were all these people gathered in this one specific spot? I don't know if you noticed, but unless you're reading from the King James Version or the NASB, your Bible is missing verse 4. No, it's not a defect, okay? Um, I'm not going to get into the details of why that verse is omitted, but if you're curious as to what that verse reads, if you have a study Bible, it should have a note there. And the missing verse reads this, for an angel of the Lord went down 
at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. You know what came to mind as I picture what was going on here? Every Tuesday, I take my son, uh, Micah, he's in first grade. I take him to Kuman, which is this after-school tutoring center. Maybe some of you guys attended in, in your childhood. And the Kuman that my son attends, it's in a highly traffic-y downtown area. And so we need to park in a lot that's probably a good five-minute walk from the tutoring center. And without fail, every Tuesday, he loves to play this game. As soon as he gets out of the car, he says, Daddy, don't step on the cracks. It's bad luck. And so as we're walking on to the sidewalk, as we're heading towards Kuman, he's sidestepping, he's jumping, he's tiptoeing around every crack that he sees. But there's this one part of the path where stepping on these cracks is unavoidable. Without my help, he's going to step on these cracks. Without my help, he's going to get bad luck. Without my help, he's going to get a zero at Kumon. And so what does he do? He, he, I, I hold out my arm and he hangs on my arm and I carry him for a good 20 steps and then I drop him. He doesn't want to step on any cracks. He needs, him, he needs my help to make sure he gets to Kumon safely. It's a silly game. It's a silly superstition. I share that with you because the game I play with my son every Tuesday is a picture of what takes place day after day, month after month, and surely year after year here at Bethesda. Here's a multitude of invalids who need the help of relatives, caretakers to carry them to the pool. They can't help themselves. They can't get there by themselves. No. They were all there because of this superstition. They were all waiting and putting their false hope in some miraculous cure. Picture with me what's taking place here. Here's a crowd of invalids, and they're waiting. They're lying around. They're waiting, powerless, dejected, miserable, nearly lifeless. Cornerstone, what a heart-tugging picture that's painted for us here. But I believe John goes into detail, not simply to tug on our hearts, but to give us a picture of the nation Israel spiritually. Think about the benefits of being an Israelite. They had the law, they had the prophets, the priesthood. They had the sacrifices, but they nevertheless remained paralyzed because they had no personal faith in the Messiah. This describes how Israel was. They were spiritually blind, lame paralyzed. But not only is this a true picture of Israel, but it's also a graphic depiction of anyone and everyone who does not have a saving relationship to Christ. What was true of Israel so long ago is true of people today who are outside of Christ. This crowd is a microcosm of the entire human race. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually blind. Apart from Christ, we are living in spiritual darkness. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Apart from Christ, there is no healing. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. What an awfully sad picture of what's taking place here. And you know what makes this even more disheartening? These people are in Jerusalem, the holy city. This is happening right next to the temple. This is happening right next to the house of the Lord. 
steps away from the temple were these spiritually lame, blind, sick, and paralyzed people. And briefly going off on a tangent, I wonder how many spiritually lame, blind, paralyzed people are steps away from Cornerstone in Lansdale. I certainly don't want to dwell on this point, but I do want to challenge you with this question. How often do we think of those outside of us? How often do we pray over the lost souls in our community, in our church, in our neighborhood? As we're gathered together, feasting on the word of God, how many of our neighbors are going through a famine of the word? As we're gathered here being satisfied in our souls, how many of our neighbors are suffering, suffering, starving their souls? That's the picture we have in today's text. But praise God, the story doesn't end in verse three. Because if you continue to read, the story zooms out on the crowd and zooms in on two men, the invalid for 38 years, and the other man is Jesus, who offers hope, compassion, and restoration. And so let's look at that interaction under, interaction under our second heading, compassion. Jesus asked this man this question, do you want to be healed? And I thought about this question and I couldn't help but think that this question was a little unnecessary. Borderline rude, do you wanna be healed? Am I missing something? Is, is, there, is, there, is it possible there's a reason that this man doesn't wanna be healed? You would figure someone who is in pain to want to be healed that pain. How much more for someone who's been sick for 38 years? And so we're still left with this question, why does Jesus ask him this simple question? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Or is it? I think this question is simple and yet so profound and the answer isn't as obvious as it seems. And here's what I mean. Some people want to drink up the water that Jesus offers, but they don't want to give up the thing that's making them thirsty. Some people want to walk, but they don't want to give up the thing that's making them lame. Some people want the bread of life, but they don't want to give up the thing that's making them starve to death. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be whole? Do you want your whole life changed? And that's a question for many of us, if not all of us in this room. Do I really want that? Do I really want to be whole? Do I want Jesus to be everything? Do I really want that transformation? This man was asked that same question. And I want you to note that out of the vast multitude, our Lord goes over to this one man for reasons known to him alone. We may wonder, why doesn't Jesus heal them all? That's not the question. The question, is ask, the question we need to be asking is, why did God heal this one? This man was no different from the rest. Jesus singles him out and says to him, not to the crowd. You know, if Jesus addressed the whole crowd, the whole crowd would have taken up their mats and walked. But he didn't. He goes to this one man. And note how this man responds. This is what we read in verse seven. This is his honest answer. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. I am not able to deliver myself. I've tried, but everyone beats me down the stairs. The lame man was answering the question, why can't you get well? But that's not the question Jesus asked him. Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? There's a difference. This man has tried everything, 
And his final hope was at the mercy of a superstition. As long as I'm first, I'll be healed. As long as I could get myself to the pool, I'll be healed. I thought about his response, his thinking, and I couldn't help but realize that I often have these similar thoughts. As long as I get that job, pass those interviews, as long as I get promoted, as long as I get a raise, as long as my children are healthy, as long as I get the grades, as long as I get into the school, as long as I'm married, as long as I have children, as long as I fill in the blank. This man believed, if only I can have an encounter with this angel of God, then. But this man had no idea that God himself would show up in the flesh. This man has no idea, absolutely no idea who he's talking to. Here was a man hoping to get to the pool so that he could save himself. And Jesus shows up and says, no, 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 there's no need for the pool. Every other religion says, make an effort and get to the pool and God will meet you there. Jesus says, you can't get there. I see where you are and I'll go to you. I'll meet you. You see, this man is a depiction of who we are outside of Christ. Man cannot, is unable to respond to God. What can a paralyzed man do? What can a dead man do? These, these people are too sick to move. You couldn't lift a finger. You can't save yourself. And so Jesus has to approach him. Jesus has to meet him. Jesus has to take the initiative. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Jesus, fully aware of this man's problem, tells this man to do the one thing he cannot. Get up, take up your mat, and walk. And we read in the very next verse, at once, immediately the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. What does this show us? The fact that he was able to take up his mat and walk had very little to do with this man's capability or even his desire to heal himself. What it had to do with is God's desire for his healing. This man was healed because of Christ's compassion. God in his sovereignty and in his infinite wisdom had planned and purposed to deliver this man. There is nothing we bring to the table. God loves us because he simply loves us. It's grace, it's prerogative. And I know every fiber in our body wants to fight that truth. We wanna prove ourselves to God. We wanna show God that we are not that dirty, we're a little righteous, that we deserve to be loved. We want to give God a reason to choose us, to love us. Or, or maybe you feel like there is no possible way God could love you. My past is hideous. My present is hideous. I'm a complete rebel. I want to remind you this morning that the beauty of the gospel isn't that he loves us because we're worthy of being loved. No, no, no. The beauty of the gospel is that in our wretched state, in our helplessness, in our sinfulness, he meets us and greets us. It's there he loves us, not after we've cleaned ourselves up, not after we've gotten to the pool. No, it's in our brokenness in our deadness, he draws near to us. And that's exactly what took place with this man. The Lord knew his past. The Lord knows his present. 
But on that day, the Lord changed the man's future. This man got up, took his mat, and walked because and only because Christ's compassion on him. What a reason to rejoice. What a reason to celebrate. What a reason to be what, uh, to praise and be in awe of this power, this miracle. But the story doesn't end there, unfortunately. If we continue reading, not everyone is happy. Not everyone is thrilled. Not everyone is rejoicing. And we'll take a look at why under our third heading, the controversy. Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, which according to the Jewish law was a big no-no. It's unlawful. But here's the thing. Jesus must have known that the religious leaders would have reacted this way. Because if anyone knows the law, it's Jesus. He's the giver of the law. Therefore, what do we, what do, what do we get here? Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath deliberately on purpose. And he's making a statement. He's sending a message. And he doesn't try to explain himself to the religious leaders, but he comes with an over-the-top statement. And he says in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. You know, this may not make much sense to us today, but anyone who heard those words from Jesus' mouth would have stopped dead in their tracks. It was a shocking statement. It, to say it was a bold statement is an understatement. And I could fully sympathize with the religious leaders. And my apologies for the sports reference, but if you follow basketball, if you follow the NBA, you know that LeBron James has become the NBA's all-time scorer. No small feat. And consequentially, these debates of LeBron James being the GOAT has resurfaced again greatest of all time. Now, my kids' names are not LeBron and James. They're Micah and Jordan, because there's only one goat. It's Michael Jordan, okay? <laughs> to say that LeBron James is the goat is blasphemous. My blood boils. I disregard and dismiss people who think LeBron is the goat. Now, what we have today is the blasphemous statement of all blasphemous statements in the eyes of the Jew. When, when Jesus said, I, my father is working until now and I am working, he was claiming that he was equal with God, that he is God, a statement worthy of the death penalty, a statement that would certainly trigger a reaction from the religious leaders. And so why does Jesus make a statement knowing exactly what type of emotions and reactions that would be stirred up? He's showing us who he is. He's defining the Sabbath for what it really is. He's showing us the Sabbath for what it was meant to be. John Piper writes this, our rest is not measured in minutes or hours, but in proximity. Sabbath is a day, but it is also a place with God, a place he makes where he pursues even when our world is moving at hyperspeed and we feel like we live on the edge of imminent catastrophe. Even when we have everything to lose, we are the blind man of whom Jesus will not lose sight. Christ is healing on the Sabbath because he's committed to you. Christ is working on the Sabbath because he's giving rest to the weary. Christ is working on the Sabbath because he is healing those who are weak. Christ is working on the Sabbath because he is seeking those who are lost 
Christ is working on the Sabbath because he loves and is committed to his people. This is who Jesus is. This is what he does. He sees, he meets, he greets, he restores that which is broken. He pursues and loves us. He wants us to be made new. He wants us to be healed and made whole, to take up our mats and walk. That's what he told that invalid of 38 years to do. But how are we made whole? How are we made new? We have a problem that is far worse than our physical ailments. What could possibly be worse than a man who has suffered for 38 years? What's the worst thing that could happen to us? There is something far deeper and greater on the line. We have been plagued by sin. Sin paralyzes us. Sin weakens us. Sin destroys us. But the worst thing is that sin separates us from God. The worst thing that could happen to you is being separated from God. And you can try to find healing like this man did for 38 years or 300 years, but our efforts would be futile. And so this sin that separates us from God needs to be dealt with by him because we have no power. We're powerless. We're spiritually paralyzed. The question is how? How is it possible that we who are spiritually invalid, blind, lame, and paralyzed, how is that we could dare stand in the presence of God? Much more walk, run, and leap to the Father's arms. There's only one way. Our sins need to be paid for, needs to be dealt with. And this morning, there is good news for us. We have a shepherd, a savior, who paid the price for us. That Savior is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who pays for our sins by entering through the sheep gate and offering himself not at the house of mercy, but on the cross of mercy. On the cross, Jesus Christ defeated sin that paralyzed us so that we can walk and live and dance in the presence of the Savior. This is his invitation to you this morning. Don't just see my power, see my person see my heart, see my unfailing love for you, see my commitment to you, see my body broken for you, see my blood poured out for you, see my unfailing love for you. Friends, we don't need a Bethesda to heal us. We have the grace of God that provides healing and that'll never, ever run dry. Cornerstone, I'm sure there are many of us who are dealing with and struggling with pains, infirmities, aches, sufferings. I want to note that believing in Jesus doesn't mean all of that will go away. But the cross is pointing us to that day where we will be fully healed, fully restored, mind, body, and soul. The word of God reminds us that he will come back for us in all of his glory, where we will join him and see him face to face. May that truth compel you to worship him, may compel you to live a life holy and pleasing unto him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you for your grace that allows us to draw near. God, we thank you for your son who entered the sheep's gate was sacrificed on a cross of mercy, dealing with our sin, 
that plagued us so that we can now walk, dance, move, and be in your presence. What great grace. What a beautiful Savior we have. We thank you for who you are, who you forever will be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.